0: This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's Community Access Media Organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello, welcome, and jo- thanks for joining the programme today. Humphrey Bogart never said, Play it again, Sam. Darth Vader never said, Luke, I'm your father. And Charles Darwin is not the one who coined the phrase, Survival of the fittest. What he said is actually a lot more compelling and has a lot more to do with the survival of the human species than mere physical fitness. Sympathy will have been increased through natural selection, Darwin wrote in The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex. For those communities which include the greatest number of the most sympathetic members would flourish best and rear the greatest number of offspring. In other words, when it comes to durability, compassion is king. Now, this is all an extract from an article by Eric Nelson entitled Compassion, Not Fitness, is Key to Survival on the website The Intelligent Optimist. The article goes on to cite Emma Sipala, the Associate Director of Stanford University's Centre for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. The centre is devoted to promoting compassion with individuals and in society through research, scientific collaboration and academic conferences. Research shows that compassion is very natural for us, said Sipala during a recent interview. But the topic hasn't received as much attention because in science there's more of a focus on healing illness and ailments and less of an emphasis on thriving and optimal well-being. Sipala says that although conventional wisdom and even some scientific studies would suggest that humans generally act out of self-interest, we have as many, if not more, impulses to act kindly and with compassion. She says that these impulses are often described biologically and physiologically as something rooted in our brain, a, and I quote, natural and automatic response that has ensured our survival. Eric Nelson's article goes on to say that some, and I guess that includes people like me, see it in more spiritual terms as an irresistible, even divinely inspired urge to do the right thing. He says almost everyone agrees, though, that compassion is innate, even if some people take a little convincing that it is so. Emma Sapala said that one man emailed her to say, I don't think I'm as compassionate as women. I'll never be like that. I don't feel like a compassionate person. It just breaks my heart, said Sipala. And she wrote back, You know, your compassion might just look different. You might want to protect people rather than cuddle up with them. It's something so natural. So I guess the one message I try to get across to people is that they are already compassionate, she said. But not only is compassion an inherent quality, It also improves our health by increasing our connection with others. Sipala refers to a study by Julian Holt-Lunstead, Timothy B. Smith and J. Bradley Layton on social relationships and mortality risk, which shows that a lack of social connection is worse for health than obesity, smoking and high blood pressure. If you want to check it out, the study called Social Relationships and Mortality Risk A meta-analytic review is on the PLOS Medicine website, www.plosmedicine.org. Sipala says, On the flip side, strong social connection leads to a 50% increased chance of longevity. Social connection strengthens our immune system, helps us recover from disease faster, and may even lengthen our life. Among the best ways to make healthy social connections, she claims, is by simply hanging out with compassionate people. If you do, you will experience a state of elevation and a chain reaction of compassion. I actually think that just having people go out and do service is a great way for them to realize the impact of compassion, she said. Being around someone who is incredibly inspiring, that in itself can change your life. And she adds, I think we should be figuring out ways to increase compassion in people that makes this natural, healthy and happy state more accessible to them. In his article, Eric Nelson points out rather obviously that being compassionate can also change the lives of others. He says that although there is more research on the effects of compassion on the giver than on the receiver, anecdotal evidence over thousands of years suggests that everyone benefits. He writes, the Buddha certainly was someone who knew firsthand the impact compassion can have on someone in need. And Jesus, the man who insisted on the importance of loving your neighbor as yourself, provided plenty of examples of how compassion could improve both the mental and physical well-being of others. Go and do thou likewise, he said, referring to his work, implying that it's not just about being nice to people, but cultivating a frame of mind capable of healing the entire array of human ailments. Now our focus over the last few programs has been the development of this frame of mind, but taking it even further, not only healing the entire array of human ailments, but all the ailments of all living beings. In Buddhist terms, this means bodhicitta. It is taking compassion right to its upper limit which is all very nice, but if we look at our abilities, whether we are capable of healing the entire array of suffering, it becomes blatantly obvious that we are not, no matter how much we want to. So who has the ability? Only a Buddha. And from that realization comes the wish to become a Buddha, to free all beings from sufferings, and that is the mind of Bodhicitta. Now we've been examining the development of bodhicitta within the verses of the Tibetan Buddhist text The Three Principal Aspects of the Path by the founder of the Guluk tradition, Lama Tungkapa. Those of you who have been following the program will know that we are examining the method called Six Cause and One Effect. The six causes being 1. Seeing all beings as our mother 2. Remembering their kindness 3. Wishing to repay their kindness 4. Great love 5. Great Compassion and 6. The Great Resolve. The one effect is, of course, Bodhicitta. We've spent quite a lot of time on the benefits and the development of compassion, for that is really the basis of Bodhicitta, and as we've seen, our own happiness. Great Compassion is compassion for all beings, as opposed to just those beings we know and love. And that is what we've been discussing up to now. Today we go into the Great Resolve. But before that, let's set our motivation as we normally do. Bodhicitta being the best motivation, as well as what we're trying to cultivate, let's make that our motivation for today. Whatever way I will participate in this program may become the cause for my enlightenment so I can benefit all beings everywhere, or something like that. Or we can say, may this become the cause for the enlightenment of all living beings, Which, to my mind, is better? It avoids the trap that comes with the thought, May I attain enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings? If we don't remember that the I, the enlightenment, and the sentient beings are all empty of independent inherent existence, we might then operate with a notion, perhaps even unconsciously, that the I truly exists in some way, and that easily leads to pride or pity or something like that. Then, instead of a positive motivation, we will have turned a god, that is bodhicitta, into a demon, as the Tibetan mind-training texts tell us not to do. Now, in any case, enough talk. Let's sit still for a moment and think about motivation. Thank you. Now, when we've developed great love and great compassion, we want all beings to have happiness and to be free of all suffering. The great resolve, which is the last step in the six-cause part of this method, is taking on the responsibility of bringing them happiness and relieving their suffering. Tipton Children makes the point that it is a proactive response, that great love and great compassion demand that we don't only wish happiness and freedom from suffering for others, but that we decide that we are going to be the agent to bring it to them. We're not going to just sit on our meditation cushions and wish it, she says, nor are we going to be frenzied do-gooders in the world so that we mind everybody else's business, but we are going to seek a proper and appropriate method to bring happiness and eliminate suffering. The Great Resolve, the sixth point, is where we take responsibility for the welfare of others. And this taking of responsibility is done joyfully, it's not taken as a burden. Sometimes the translation says, I will take on the burden of liberating all beings. But I think responsibility is a better word. All of these words have so many different connotations in English. But what the teaching is trying to do is make our minds strong, so that if we take on a burden, responsibility, it doesn't become a burden, so that if we take on a responsibility, it doesn't become an obligation. This is something done joyfully. It's not like, Oh, I have to liberate all sentient beings. How in the world am I going to do this? It's too much. But it's like, I'm going to do this. You are really upbeat and optimistic about the whole thing. You are taking responsibility. There are two aspects to the great resolve, she says. One aspect is great love and one aspect is great compassion. So when you say, I myself will free sentient beings from suffering, that is the great resolve together with great compassion. When you say, I myself will bring happiness to sentient beings, that's the great resolve together with great love. She says that often her teacher, Lama Zoparumse, will get his students to generate the motivation, I myself alone will liberate all living beings. She says, At first your mind goes, Who, me? I can't even take care of myself. I can't liberate myself, let alone all sentient beings. So this is what leads us to the next point of the actual bodhicitta. Because it's true, when we can't take care of ourselves, we can't even liberate ourselves. In fact, we can't even be sure that we are creating good karma to get a good rebirth. Then we realize, hey, as a limited being, it's hard for me to really fulfill this aspiration of great resolve. So what do I need to do if I want to fulfill this aspiration? So we look around and we say, Who's best able to benefit beings and lead them to enlightenment? Who's the most capable of it? Okay, our mothers and our fathers and our teachers were kind, but can they lead us to enlightenment? No. So we can take them as as a role model only so far. What about the arhats? those beings who are liberated from samsara, from cyclic existence? They've liberated themselves, but do they have all the qualities necessary to liberate everybody? Well, no. So who has, from their own side, the qualities necessary to do the greatest good and benefit? Do the bodhisattvas? Well, the bodhisattvas have great love and compassion, but they still have imprints on the mind and obscurations on the mind, so they aren't the most qualified either. They are certainly better able than us, but not the most qualified. So who is it who has a mind that's fully purified of all the obscurations, and where all the good qualities have been totally developed so that they can spontaneously and effortlessly be of the greatest benefit in whatever situation they're in. Who has that ability? We look around. That's the ability that belongs to a Buddha alone. And then we see that's the reason we have to become fully enlightened Buddhas ourselves, so that at that time there are no obscurations on the mind, so we have the full wisdom So we know exactly what to teach people about how to liberate themselves and break through the ignorance. Now Rumbarumbashe, a great Tibetan master who has passed on now, made the comparison of the great resolve to the same sense of responsibility that a child would feel towards his or her mother, feeling responsible to make her happy and free from suffering. We have the great resolve when we feel that way to all living beings when we feel that we ourselves alone will liberate them from all suffering and bring them the happiness they strive for. It also is like taking on the responsibility of saving someone from falling off a cliff, Rinpoche says. Actually, the teachings talk about seeing your blind old mother walking on the edge of a cliff leading on a stick. What would you do? Leave her to make her own way with a very real danger of falling down the cliff? or go and carefully guide her to safety. When we see all beings as similarly in danger, not from a mere cliff fall, but from the endless dissatisfactions and sufferings of cyclic existence, when we develop the firm determination to do whatever we can to guide them out of cyclic existence and to safety, we've made the great resolve. To transform great compassion to the great resolve, Alan Wallace, in his book Tibetan Buddhism from the Ground Up, also explains that we have to go beyond merely wishing for external persons to be free from suffering and to attain happiness. He says we actually have to change our point of view. He writes, we shift to the other person's perspective, generating loving-kindness for that person from that person's point of view. As the practice deepens, we use the one-pointed mind as a tool to look deeper, mixing the generation of loving-kindness with a clearer vision of the person's own fears and desires. And gradually we find that even if that person's expression of the wish to be happy and avoid pain appears to be very different from our own, at the root they are the same. We start the process with people we are very close to, gradually shifting to people towards whom we are indifferent. Eventually we move to people we find repugnant. But even in this case we do not look at these offensive people from the outside, Wishing that they be happy as in loving kindness meditation, but instead try to see their situation from their own perspective. Looking from the other's viewpoint, we can begin to realize they are also trying to be happy, just like all other sentient beings, though they may be going about it in a very confused way. Even if their behavior is extremely unwholesome, we may be able to p- penetrate to the roots of their actions so deeply that we recognize their innermost desires and yearnings are identical to our own. In this way, we shift the axis of our priorities and cultivate a feeling of cherishing others more than ourselves. And this becomes more than a meditation. It becomes a life-transforming attitude that expresses itself in action. I recently came across the book Stories of the Spirit, Stories of the Heart, edited by Christine Feltman and Jack Cornfield. And one of the stories seems to speak directly to this point. It's evidently quite a famous account of an experience that the U.S. Aikido pioneer and specialist Terry Dobson had while studying in Japan during his youth. It goes like this. The train clanked and rattled through the suburbs of Tokyo on a drowsy spring afternoon. Our car was comparatively empty. A few housewives with their kids in tow, some old folks going shopping. I gazed absently at the drab houses and dusty hedgerows. At one station the doors opened and suddenly the afternoon quiet was shattered by a man bellowing violent, incomprehensible curses. The man staggered into our car. He wore labourers' clothing and he was big, drunk and dirty. Screaming, he swung at a woman holding a baby. The blow sent her spinning into the laps of an elderly couple. It was a miracle the baby was unharmed. Terrified, the couple jumped up and scrambled towards the other end of the car. The labourer aimed a kick at the retreating back of the old woman but missed as she scuttled for safety. This so enraged the drunk that he grabbed the metal pole in the centre of the car and tried to wrench it out of its stanchion. I could see that one of his hands was cut and bleeding. The train lurched ahead, the passengers frozen with fear. I stood up. I was young then, some twenty years ago and in pretty good shape. I had been putting in a solid eight hours of Aikido training nearly every day for the past three years. I liked to throw and grapple. I thought I was tough. Trouble was, my martial skill was untested in actual combat. As students of Aikido, we were not allowed to fight. Aikido, my teacher had said again and again, is the art of reconciliation. Whoever has the mind to fight has broken his connection to the universe. If you try to dominate people, you are already defeated. We must study how to resolve conflict, not how to start it. I listened to his words. I tried hard. I even went so far as to cross the street to avoid the Champira, the pinball punks who lounged around the train stations. My forbearance exalted me. I felt both tough and holy. In my heart, however, I wanted an absolutely legitimate opportunity whereby I might save the innocent by destroying the guilty. This is it, I said to myself, getting to my feet. People are in danger, and if I don't do something fast, they will probably get hurt. Seeing me stand up, the drunk recognized a chance to focus his rage. Aha! he roared. A foreigner! You need a lesson in Japanese manners! I held on lightly to the commuter strap overhead and gave him a slow look of disgust and dismissal. I planned to take this turkey apart, but he had to make the first move. I wanted him mad, so I pursed my lips and blew him an insolent kiss. All right, he hollered, you're going to get a lesson. He gathered himself for a rush at me. A split second before he could move, someone shouted, Hey! It was ear-splitting. I remember the strangely joyous, lilting quality of it, as though you and a friend had been searching diligently for something, and he suddenly stumbled upon it. Hey! I wheeled to my left, the drunk spun to his right. We both stared down at a little old Japanese. He must have been well into his seventies, this tiny gentleman sitting there immaculate in his kimono. He took no notice of me, but beamed delightedly at the labourer, as though he had the most important, most welcome secret to share. Come here, the old man said in an easy vernacular, beckoning to the drunk. Come here and talk with me. He waved his hand lightly. The big man followed as if on a string. He planted his feet belligerently in front of the old gentleman and roared above the clacking wheels, Why the hell should I talk to you? The drunk now had his back to me. If his elbow moved so much as a millimetre, I'd drop him in his socks. The old man continued to beam at the labourer. What you been drinking? he asked, his eyes sparkling with interest. I've been drinking sake, the labourer bellowed back, and it's none of your business. Flicks of spittle spattered the old man. Oh, that's wonderful, the old man said, absolutely wonderful. You see, I love sake too. Every night, me and my wife, she's seventy-six, you know, We warm up a little bottle of sake and take it out into the garden, and we sit on an old wooden bench. We watch the sun go down, and we look to see how our persimmon tree is doing. My great-grandfather planted that tree, and we worry about whether it will recover from those ice storms we had last winter. Our tree has done better than I expected, though, especially when you consider the poor quality of this soil. It's gratifying to watch when we take our sake and go out to enjoy the evening, even when it rains. He looked up at the labourer, eyes twinkling. As he struggled to follow the old man's conversation, the drunk's face began to soften. His fists slowly unclenched. ''Yeah,'' he said, ''I love persimmons too.'' His voice trailed off. ''Yes,'' said the old man, ''I'm sure you have a wonderful wife.'' ''No,'' replied the labourer, ''my wife died.'' Very gently, swaying with the motion of the train, the big man began to sob. I don't got no wife. I don't got no home. I don't got no job. I'm so ashamed of myself. Tears rolled down his cheeks. A spasm of despair rippled through his body. Now it was my turn. Standing there in my well-scrubbed youthful innocence, my make-this-world-safe-for-democracy righteousness, I suddenly felt dirtier than he was. Then the train arrived at my stop, as the doors opened, I heard the old man chuckle sympathetically. My, my, he said, that is a difficult predicament indeed. Sit down here and tell me about it. I turned my head for one last look. The labourer was spoiled on the seat, his head in the old man's lap. The old man was softly stroking the filthy matted hair. As the train pulled away, I sat down on a bench. What I'd wanted to do with muscle had been accomplished with kind words. I had just seen Aikido tried in combat, and the essence of it was love. I would have to practice the art with an entirely different spirit. It would be a long time before I could speak about the resolution of conflict. It's a beautiful story, and Dobson must have learned something from his experience because he went on to give lectures and training in Aikido throughout the States in the 1970s. Now returning to Alan Wallace, he asks, What can we do to alleviate the suffering in the world? And says, Pursuing this question may lead to great compassion, which is based on the sense of even-mindedness towards all living creatures. This is more than the wish, May you be free of suffering. It's taking upon ourselves the task of alleviating the suffering of others and of bringing others to a state of well-being wasn't this the action of that old man on the train? The young Terry Dobson could only see the belligerence and anger, but the old man looked way beyond that to the pain behind it. What is remarkable is the skill and courage he was able to tap into to help the drunk labourer. The way Dobson describes it, the old man was least concerned for his own safety. In fact, his twinkling eyes and almost merry attitude seems to speak of a complete lack of fear and an absence of the overweening ego that the youthful Dobson was giving into. Perhaps Alan Wallace describes what was going on with him when he says, When generating this great compassion, we must remember that the eye that takes this on is beyond the level of personality. Otherwise, this path can develop into a kind of altruistic ego trip. To avoid this, we need to go deep into the nature of our own being, to the Buddha nature. We can look at this task and ask ourselves how can we hope to relieve all sentient beings from suffering when we cannot even do it for ourselves? The answer here is that our limitations are not immutable and they can be overcome. To manifest great compassion in the world we may decide we can best serve others by being a doctor or politician, even president but the essential thing is to become a Buddha. We need to become a Buddha an awakened being, and then we can become a Buddha doctor, a Buddha dharma teacher, or even a Buddha farmer, whatever we want to be. This is the only way to maximum effectiveness. Now even if that old man was not a Buddha, he surely touched some of his Buddha nature, don't you think? But now our time together has passed and we will once again have to part. Please dedicate any positive potential from the program today to gaining enlightenment for the benefit, both temporary and ultimate, of all living beings. That, at least, is one action we can take today towards the Great Resolve. Thank you for joining us today and I hope you'll be with us next week. Goodbye.